this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, unqualified, unqualified number four. Through this series, we have talked about what we think unqualifies us, right? And the fact that God uses those things for his glory instead of causing us to not be useful in his kingdom, right? What God can actually use, he can use our anger, he can use our fear, he can use all of it. And if we just give him a little, he can do so much with that. But today, I want to round off this series, and I'm not convinced this will be the last one. We'll see what God does this week. But I want to round off this series with an example of what can happen when someone unqualified is actually leading, right? It is not to say, the series is not to say that God never unqualifies us or that we are always qualified for service in God's kingdom no matter what we do or or say or think. But what happens when someone is actually unqualified? And to give you some background today, we're going to read a part of scripture that occurred after Gideon, which we read a couple of weeks ago. It occurred after Moses, after the Red Sea, after the wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, and after the Israelites entered the promised land. This generation of people had lived in the promised land for a long time now. They settled in, they got fat and happy, they they got too comfortable. They became spoiled, rotten brats, actually, taking whatever they wanted and their system of government governance at this point was really just priests to handle communication to God, prophets to handle communication from God, and judges to handle disputes between people. Okay, so there were priests, prophets, and judges at this point. God was their leader. God was their king. He was their ruler. This is a very unique situation, even for this time. Most civilizations in this time in history had a leader. One guy, a tribal chieftain, a king, something. They had a leader. Not Israel. Very unique situation even for that time. Imagine a country, a nation of people, loosely connected in families. There were 12 tribes of Israel with sort of a warrior leader of each tribe, but but loosely connected still as a nation with one identity. With no king, no president, no dictator, nothing like that. No leader under whom to unite. Not one flag, but 12. You can imagine there would be some issues there, right? My big realization this week was that God actually wanted Israel to function this way. This was the ideal. This is how he set them up from entering the promised land. God set it up so that Israel wasn't actually just one nation in a political sense. They were much more of a family than a nation. They were tribes, family units, not states. They had religious laws, not legal ones. They had a God, not a king very unique situation even for this time and one you really have to understand for our passage today. It's even unique for for today, right? Can you name a nation on planet earth that doesn't have an actual leader, right? Maybe, you know, it's because our, our family has just begun our foster care journey, but I am seeing lately so much how families 
just how much families affect everything. Everything. When you don't have a good one, it changes everything. When you do have a good one, it changes everything. God created families. He placed us in families, in communities, in tribes, and in people groups. We were created to be together, to function in unity, to nurture each other, to encourage each other, to grow each other. When that's messed up, everything's messed up. It changes how we develop, how we think, how we see the world. It's all shaped by family. And it's why the way we treat our family is so important to the heart of God. So important to the heart of God. There are so many requirements on church leaders in the word. If you, if you want to read, you know, biblically what a church leader should live up to, you can read a couple of passages I have linked in the sermon notes. But there's a lot in there about how you treat your family. <laughs> What happens in your home, not in the church? How you treat them is important. Let me show you a very literal example of what I mean here today, right? We're going to 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, Samuel, the man, Samuel is a prophet of the Lord. Uh, he's really the last prophet of the Lord who is also sort of a judge or a priest. He, he's sort of unique in that, in the word. He was the last one of his kind he was raised in the temple. He, he was dedicated to the Lord in a really unique way. I love Samuel's story, actually, because he's, he's just so faithful. He lives a, a very long, good life. Um, he's, he never wavers. He's faithful even as a kid. He's faithful long into adulthood. He's faithful for a long time in ministry, serving people who just didn't want to be served. <laughs> he's faithful even with a little power, you know, we see him growing in stature and in power. He's even faithful through that. He, he's faithful when his leaders are abusive and bad. He's just a faithful guy, always looking to God, always having a heart for God. But that's not to say that he didn't make some mistakes. What I want you to see here today is that some mistakes cost more than others. Like some mistakes do unqualify you but it might not be the ones you think, okay? The sermon's called Three Reasons Why. <laughs> There's three reasons why you can become unqualified just from what I see in this particular scripture. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Give us a king. The Samuel's sons were jerks. Okay, just to put it plainly, they abused their power for selfish gain. And it caused an entire nation to betray God. Right, this just sounds like uh, one of those verses you sort of read over, but just go with me here. Right, This is why your first ministry under God should be to your family. Not only has God placed us in families, he set up humankind to function best within families, but he also called you to your family. Samuel 
was faithful to God. He was faithful to the people of Israel, but he wasn't faithful to his kids. And they grew up to be jerks and caused an entire nation to betray God. Give us a king to judge us, a human king, not a godly king, a human king. If you're a parent of young kids and your family hasn't been your first priority under God lately, you're doing it wrong. And there's almost nothing more important. This isn't just for parents of young kids, but it's important for parents of young kids. Here's the order, though, because a lot of parents get this mixed up. It's God first, always. Right? Everything else falls into place when God is first. That means church is a priority, always. That means tithing, always. That means fasting and praying and Bible reading, all of it. A thriving relationship with your creator. God comes first. Second is your spouse if you're married, right? Not the kids. I know it sounds horrible, but hear me on this. People get this mixed up sometimes, especially when they're very little. It's really hard. I know that. But set the tone when they're little, even if you can't hit all the benchmarks, right? Set the tone. It gets easier as they grow. My kids once asked me, we're driving in the car, and literally my kids, I don't know how old they were, five and two or three. And the oldest one said, Mama, who do you love more, Daddy or us? She thought she had it in the bag, right? She was sure she knew what my answer was going to be. But I very quickly said, Daddy. And she went, oh, what? She was horrified. I was like, babe, the best way that I can love you is by loving your daddy the best. Right? We stay together. We, you live together. There's no splitting anything up. When I love your daddy the best, that's the best way that I can love you. And she went, she didn't quite get it, right? No, I'm not sure. I, not sure I'm tracking with you there, Mom. But it's, that's the order this should go in. When my kids are grown and out of the house and older, I'm left with that guy. Right? Aaron, from those of you who don't know, my husband is sitting right there. I'm left with him. We have to still have something together when they're gone, right? A lot of people get this wrong. They don't put the, the spouse relationship first. And the kids suffer for it. So the best way that I can love them is by loving him. Third is those kids, though. God, spouse, kids. Those kids come before work. Those kids come before play. Those kids come before entertaining myself. They come before self-care. I know our world's all into self-care right now. They come before that, right? Although some of self-care is done in the relationship with God, right? You need very little manicures and times out of the house and girls' nights and whatever. If you're spending that time with God, you're getting that filled with God. But that's another subject. You chose to have those kids. They didn't choose to be had. Your spouse and your kids are your first ministry under God. I don't care what else God calls you to. They come before that. Actually, the better way to say it is more your vocation or your calling from God should come from that. Right? From a good home and family life. Not around it, over it, trampling on it, ignoring it, pushing it to the side. It should flow from just like when you have a relationship with your creator, everything else flows into place. Right? 
under that, I should have an amazing relationship with my spouse. Everything under that flows into place. Amazing relationship with my kids, with a home should flow. Everything else flows into place. It comes from that. Just like your relationship with God comes first, but not in the sense that it tramples everything else. I am not saying ignore the kids while you say, this is my Bible time, right? But in the sense that it feeds everything else. From your relationship with God, everything else flows. Like C.S. Lewis wrote, right? I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Your whole life fits into place when you serve God first and put him first. My relationship with God feeds my relationship with my family. And from that place, feeds my relationship with my world. Okay? What I do is important. I believe it affects, and I'm talking about me, what I actually do, this pastoring thing that I do. It is important. I believe it affects lives for eternity. It's a big deal. I believe in what I do wholeheartedly, but it's fourth on my priority list every day. Not first. Not just that I don't try to do a great job and set work hours and take it seriously because keeping a job, holding down a job is also loving my family, right? It's providing for them. But here's the thing. You're not just raising kids that reflect on who you are. You're raising kids that reflect on who he is. When we keep that in mind, it changes the way we parent. The Bible says to train your kids, not just raise them. Train them up in the way they should go. When they're old, they will not depart from it. Right? We train our kids to follow Jesus. We train our kids to be obedient, not just to us, but to God. We train them. We take it seriously. It is a priority. I I think a lot of Christians just raise kids. We feed them. We clothe them. We put a roof over their head. And at the end of the day, all of that has been so exhausting, the the training part, (sighs) right? We don't get to it. We don't just raise them. We train them. We train them to interact with a world that wants to convince them that selfishness is the way to go. I train them to give themselves wholeheartedly to God. We train them that church is a priority because it's a practice of worship, of servanthood, of generosity, and of friendship. We train them. We train them to be disciplined, to discipline themselves. Train them to care for themselves and for others. You are raising little adults. You're raising people who will go out and interact with their world. They will be leaders, business people, Teachers, tradesmen, mothers, fathers, boyfriends, girlfriends, they will interact with other humans. Teach them, hurt them, love them, all of it. They aren't just your little babies. They are, they're not just for pure entertainment or for your pride. (laughs) Yeah, I know it sounds obvious, but some parents honestly need to hear this. Train them to do it well. Train them to interact with their world well. Because if you don't, it could mean big things. Maybe not as big as Samuel's thing here, but big things. The result of Samuel not raising his boys in the way they should go was that an entire nation betrayed God. Twelve tribes came together and unanimously said, we want a king. We don't want God as our king anymore. We want a human king. It's an extreme consequence, but that's what happened. 
Listen, I'm, I'm not just talking to parents of little ones, though. We all, as Christians, have a responsibility to children. And we've always believed that as a church. We've always been passionate about kids and youth as a church. I believe Christians should care deeply about children and teenagers. We have to find a way to give in to them, to love them, to encourage them, to see them, really see them, to believe in them. Everyone needs that. It's just one caring adult. One caring adult can make all the difference in the life of a kid. Right? We all remember that favorite teacher growing up or youth leader or person that believed in us when it felt like the world was against us. Just one caring adult can change the world for a kid. Be that one. Be that one. If you're a parent right now, you are doing important work. It doesn't feel important all of the time. It feels unseen and locked in your house and some of it's just drudgery. <laughs> Just with all the extra parenting we've been doing lately, I know how, like, busy and also boring parenting can be at the same time, right? But people may not always see the work, but God does. God sees it. Everything you do for your kids is is an investment into the future, not just their future, the future, right? All the people that they will interact with throughout their lives, it's an investment to them. If you're not a parent right now, find a way to be that caring one for someone, right? Especially for kids and teenagers. Serving in kids' ministry. Volunteer to be a big brother or sister. Yes, that's a thing in Gettysburg. And yes, they always need big brothers and big sisters, particularly big brothers. They're always in need of men. Be a foster parent or find a way to help a foster parent. Be a volunteer in youth ministry. Volunteer at a school, a library, a hospital. If you're an aunt or an uncle, a a grandparent, a godparent, be a great one. Be present, right? Be someone who sees kids, who believes in them, who finds something to encourage, not just belittle and judge. Be someone who listens, who cries when they cry, who laughs when they laugh. Who's a safe place for them when they're scared. Jesus welcomed children. I often call Jesus a kid's pastor. He was like the first kid's pastor because he changed the way we see children as a society and culture across the world. 2,000 years later, we're still looking at children differently because Jesus did. He changed that. Christians ended up setting up orphanages and schools and hospitals after Jesus came. Christians did that. Change the world just by him welcoming children to himself. Let the little children come to me and don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, he said. He knew what it meant. He knew what they meant to the heart of the Father. He knew how precious each and every one of them was. But he also knew what happens when we get this wrong. Samuel got it wrong. Mistreating your family will disqualify you. Or, and maybe them will disqualify them. At first, I struggled with this point because, like, Samuel had lived a good long life. He was faithful to God. But is a life without a good legacy a successful ministry? Not being able to say that you passed anything on. It's sure Samuel led Israel well for a time, but 
after his time, we have the benefit of 2020. We can see you know, the hindsight. We can see what happened after. He, he led Israel really well for a time. They served God. But after his time, he had nothing to show for it. He must have felt like such a failure there at the end. Like, I'm old, God, and now they want to betray you. They want a king, a human king instead of you. What am I supposed to do with this? His behavior didn't disqualify himself necessarily, but it disqualified his kids and therefore his legacy, his history, his memory. If you get to the end of your life and you only have stuff to show for it, (laughs) what's the point? That's what I keep telling myself lately as we're doing all this extra parenting in my house because parenting can be tough work. But I'm not building up my treasure here. All right, my treasure can be broken and busted. My treasure, my things, my stuff, it's all going to fade away after I'm gone anyway. I'm building up treasure in heaven, treasure that will last, so that moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal, right? I'm building up people. It's an incredibly big and important job. And you don't have to be a parent to do it. That's what church is for. We get to be family together. One of those passages I read this week about um, qualifications for church leaders, it calls the church God's household. And we say welcome home. It's on the wall. It's on our opening video, right? This is a, a home. We are God's household, not just his kingdom, right, his little servants. We are a family serving each other, right? There are... Women with mother's hearts that don't have kids yet or can't have kids or whatever, but we have mother's hearts. We can mother others at the church, right? Or fathers who can father others that don't have one or kids that need a a spiritual mom or dad, right? Extended family. We got cousins in here growing up all together. We are the family of God. And it's an incredibly big deal to build up people. Now, Israel literally had God God, like a perfect being, the, the one who created them, knew them inside and out, the almighty, the everlasting, the beginning and the end. They had God as their king. Now, so many people are like, well, why would God allow this or that? Right? Why would God allow these bad things to happen? If he's so good and so perfect, why would he allow bad things? We asked him to not be our leader anymore. People did that. We wanted a human to lead us. This is is Israel's history, but it's our history as Christians as well. We asked for that. They asked for a human. Not even a specific human. (laughs) Just a human. Just put a, a flawed, imperfect human being on the throne instead of you, God. It just goes to show you the grass has always been greener on the other side. Thousands of years ago, right? This isn't a new thing in human history. We have always thought we knew better since Adam and Eve in the garden. It was torturing me this week. Like if Samuel's sons had just been good, godly, like good people, not abusing their power, if they had just been faithful like their father, maybe an entire nation wouldn't have wanted to betray God. This doesn't just go with for families with little ones. The New Testament also has a lot to say about people who treat widows 
who mistreat the poor, right, who don't take care of their immediate family. Everybody's got a family, extended family, someone. Take care of your family. It's what we're called to as Christians. God placed you within it for better or worse. I'm not saying suffer abuse. You know, I'm not, never an advocate for that. Sometimes you have to cut ties for mental health reasons or add some boundaries or whatever. There's no guilt or shame from me about that. But take care of the people around you, even if it's your chosen family. Take care of your community. Put family over function. It's a calling, too, and it's important. People are important. Make it your mission to develop people, to encourage them, build them up, see the gifts and talents within them and call them out, empower, and hold them to a standard and fight back against the evil in this world. Do more than your part to undo someone else's selfishness. That's what we're called to as Christians. That is a universal calling. You're called to your family, the people around you. It's important, and it's messy when you mess it up, as we can see in Samuel's story. But that's only the first reason why. Verse 6 goes on to say, Samuel was displeased with their request, as you can imagine. And he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. How often do we do this? And God warns us against something, and we're like, yeah, I'll still take it, just to be like the people around me. I think all of this with Israel stems from the fact that they couldn't see their blessings, though. He just listed a whole list of things that wasn't happening for them, they couldn't even see it. They, they couldn't see all the bad things coming their way because they couldn't see just how good they had it now. They couldn't see that living life as a family, not as a nation, was so much better. That God had the best in mind for them. That he knew them better than they knew themselves. They couldn't see it because they weren't grateful. Lack of gratitude will disqualify you as well. When you remain ungrateful, you miss a lot. You miss a lot. You become prideful. 
begin thinking that everything is owed to you, and then you start to misuse and abuse others because, after all, they exist to please you, right? You begin to think your function in life is to be served, not to serve. Even here, after being told all that a king would do, people still couldn't see how good they actually had it without a king because they hadn't been practicing gratitude all along. They hadn't been seeing all of the good things that God was doing for them all along. A lack of gratitude will disqualify you for all that God has for you. And I say all that God has for you because there's this little concept in the word that tortures me sometimes. And it is called the fullness of salvation. Fullness of salvation. There are a bunch of, of verses with this term. The fullness of salvation. I've heard it all my life. It's something, you know, you just sort of throw out there with a verse that you read, the fullness of salvation. But one time I stumbled across it when I was reading the word and it just hit me. Wait, so I can have salvation, but a less than full salvation? There exists something that is the fullness of salvation. So there must exist something that is less than full, right? Like, I can be missing something that God has for me, believing in Jesus, giving my life to him, but still missing something. I actually think now most Christians have a less than full salvation. (laughs) Most of us are experiencing less than what God has for us. I think most of us are walking around saved from hell, saved from eternal separation from God, but lacking the fullness of what God has for us here. Jesus even said that he came to give life and life abundantly. Not just life. There's two separate terms there. He came to give life and life abundantly. More than life. Overflowing life. Good things in life. Life abundantly. Some of us just have life in eternity. And that's good. Don't get me wrong. That's very good. But he came to give us life abundantly here, too. We don't always get that. And I'm not saying he necessarily came to, you know, give you the lifestyles of the rich and famous, of all of the things that you want in life, because fame and riches can be traps as well. But he wants you blessed. By that, I mean he wants you free. He wants you joyful, peaceful. These things usually come down to obedience and gratitude. Being grateful for what he's given us. If you can see your blessings and thank God for them, get your priorities in order. He can bless you with so much more. Or in Israel's case, let you keep the blessings that he's already given you. Because here's the thing. Just because you prayed for it does not mean it's what's best for you. This tortures me sometimes, too, a concept you see throughout the word where you pray for something and God says yes, even though it's not what's in your best interest. What if I'm right now praying for something desperately to God? God, give me this. Give me that. Give me whatever. And God's saying no for my benefit. He's not a mean old guy in the sky wanting to keep things from me. He's saying no because it's what's better for me. Sometimes you actually want God to say no to your prayer requests. You just don't know it yet. 
answered prayers are not always what's best for you. I, I always think of this example when I tell people that, this passage when I tell people this sometimes. Sometimes there's no going back. God granted Israel's request. But a king surely did do all the things that he warned them he would do. There was no going back. Israel had a king for a thousand years after that and essentially still has a king. I looked it up. (laughs) Prime minister now. They could never go back to being more of a family under God. As God with their king, They, they never went back. Always enslaved to a king from then on in their history. Verse 21 says, so Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. And Samuel agreed and sent the people home. When we approach God with our requests, instead of asking what he wants for us, there's some danger there. God may say yes, and that's the danger. Instead, we should be approaching God with, with an open heart, a surrendered heart, right? There's a level of prayer where you actually begin to, you know, go to God with requests and needs, and he wants all of that. Don't get me wrong. But there's a next level of surrender, a next level of submission that will teach you that there's more. There's more. If we can just go with an open heart, not just with our own requests, a, a Santa Claus list, a laundry list of God, do this, this, and this. I would like this, this, and this for myself, for my family, for people, whatever. We may get a yes, but it's not necessarily the best thing for us. Whereas if we go to God with God, what do you want for me? What should I be praying about today? Should I, I be open to this opportunity or, or close to it, right? It's if we instead approach him with questions rather than demands, Submission, surrender. Now, here's my preference, God. But if it's not what you want, lead me in the right direction. I change my heart to match yours. Hey, stop me if I'm, I'm going the wrong way here. I'm open to that. Lead me, Lord. I think most of us want to lead God rather than the other way around. And when we get in that place, that place that Jesus was in, the Garden of Gethsemane, Right where he said, God, please let this cup pass from me. But ultimately, your will, your will be done. Right? If we get in that place, we accept things that are actually good for us. We can accept that God has more in mind for us, that he has a, a better plan, that he knows us better than we know ourselves. When we refuse to get into that place, when we continue to bring him a list of demands, we accept things that should be beneath us, but it's what we think we deserve. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1, goes on to tell this story, and we're not going to read all of it, but there was a wealthy, influential man named Kish in the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia. Somebody say Aphia. So I'm not the only one up here saying these crazy names. Of the tribe of Benjamin, his son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. So Israel wants a king, and here is Saul, right? Saul looked the part. He fit the role, 
He made everybody happy, but he wasn't the one. He wasn't the plan God had for his people. And what I mean by that is he wasn't the best that God had. Ultimately, God chose him. He granted their request, and he chose Saul. But he wasn't the best God had because he, he had already given them his best. He had already given them himself as his king. They were choosing something less. But Saul made Israel happy. He looked good. He was wealthy. He was charismatic. He was handsome and tall. He looked the part. We do this all the time. We disqualify people in our own minds because they don't look the part. Right? We put people without good hearts in places that shouldn't be there because they look the part. We have to be careful with that. Making snap judgments because shallow thinking will also disqualify you. And we pick people all the time to fill a role that only God should be filling. People fill those holes in our hearts, that fill those needs in our soul in a very shallow way that is then empty very quickly. Whereas God can fill a space in your life so much better. We used to say in the 90s all the time that we have a God-shaped hole, right, in our souls. It's true. We, we pick people, people, we pick people, flawed, imperfect human beings that look qualified over someone that is actually qualified. God is actually qualified to fill your, your joy bucket, give you peace, overflowing, right? The, the Holy Spirit comes to give us the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That is what the Holy Spirit provides, and only the Holy Spirit provides well. We can fake those things for a while. We can pretend we're happy and everything's good and all the right people are in the right places in my life and things are good, but how long does that actually last in real life? These things fade. God can fill those holes well. Shallow thinking will also disqualify you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.